Welcome back to Mathetai, and we're glad you're here joining us today. It's a blessing to study the scriptures with you, and uh, I hope you're finding our studies through the book of Luke uh, useful and beneficial. And uh, we've had some great interviews recently. I uh, encourage you to check those out if you haven't already. And uh, hopefully God's doing uh, some great stuff with you and uh, with this time together. So we're very blessed that you're here. We're going to continue on through chapter one of the book of Luke. We have been studying uh, the birth narratives of both John and Jesus. Uh, just to recap a little bit, uh, all the way back in the first four vo- verses, we saw Luke giving us insights into uh, why he wrote this gospel, uh, who he's writing to. And we saw in verse 4 there that uh, he's writing to Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke's goal in writing this gospel is to give certainty regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's our goal as we study through this, that we would become convinced of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's done for us in the life that we have in him, that we would have a certainty and a greater assurance of our faith in Christ as we study this book. Uh, Then in verse 5, he jumps straight into the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist uh, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then right into the foretelling of the birth of Jesus in verse 26 uh, to the Virgin Mary. Uh, And then Mary visits Elizabeth, and the two come together, and we saw how all of this interaction plays out, and we saw Mary's song, her Magnificat, uh, response to this. And uh, today we come up to verse 57, where we're going to look at the fulfillment of that prophecy of the coming of the birth of John. Uh, And so we're going to see John's birth and the the events surrounding that. We're going to see the third birth narrative song, a nativity song that comes from this uh, as Zechariah's voice is opened up and he's able to prophesy and speak uh, about the birth of his son. So let's pick right up in verse 57. Uh, in the previous section, Mary had been visiting with Elizabeth. Uh, she praised the Lord and began to see what God was doing in her life. And uh, we have an incredible Magnificat there. And then Mary, in verse 56, remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. So we know that Mary may have stayed until John was born. She may have been present for the birth of John and then returned back home. Or she may have returned back home just before John was born. But it would have been around that same time. And so in verse 57, Mary is out of the picture for the time being. We'll come back to her in chapter 2. And we go back to the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, remember, Zechariah was a faithful priest serving in the temple uh, of the line uh, of uh, <coughs> Abijah, the division of Abijah. So, a faithful Jewish priest of the right lineage, the Levites. Uh, and his wife there, Elizabeth, was also a faithful uh, woman of God from the daughters of Aaron. So, a priestly line wife. So, and as far as the Jews go, this was the cream of the crop. But they were older in years and they had no child, which would have been seen as uh, a, a curse, if you will, or, or something that God, the displeasure of God displayed in their life to be childless and barren. And so when the Lord came and, and promised them a child, it would have been uh, reminiscent of what God did with Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis. Uh, and so it would have connected those two stories in an incredible way. And now the time has come, in verse 57, for Elizabeth to give birth, the fulfillment of this prophecy. And she bore a son. So, uh, simple statement there, nothing uh, fancy, but but the time had come and the child was born, just as God had prophesied. Verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. Now, let me stop there before we go further, and let's look a little bit about what this means. So the time had come, this is the continuing timing sequence throughout chapter 1 in relationship to the conception and birth of John. That's our timing. Um, and so all the way through, through, even with the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, it's all put into relation of the timing of John, who is the first event really to take place there, the forerunner. And so back in verses 24 and 26, we see those proclamations made um, And it's the same thing. So this is nine months later 
since the beginning of the chapter. And the prophecy is fulfilled from verses 13 and 14 that Elizabeth would bear a son. Now, it's a specific prophecy, not just a child, but a son in particular. Now, what's interesting to note here is in verses 57 uh, all the way up through 61, Zechariah is absent. Normally, the father plays the central role in this patriarchal type society, and the father would have had a central role in the household as the head of the house there. But here, uh, Elizabeth takes the forefront. Elizabeth is the one bringing forth the child. Elizabeth is the one uh, proclaiming the name. And that would have been a significant uh, step there because Zechariah had been uh, rendered mute as a sign, if you remember, because of his lack of faith in what the angel was telling him. The sign was that he would be mute until all of this was fulfilled. And so Elizabeth takes the forefront in the stage here and um, until Zechariah is able to speak again. Now, all the Lord, all of the neighbors come by and they heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Now, literally, that could be translated that the Lord had magnified his mercy to her. The Lord had already been merciful, had already demonstrated great things. But here, the mercy is magnified in a significant way to her. And, and it would have spoken of the mercy of God, uh, despite her social prestige, despite, despite her, her, her role and, and the role of her husband being a prominent and well-regarded role within society, their barrenness would have been that disfavor from God. And so what the birth of John would have done for Elizabeth in particular, but Elizabeth and Zechariah as a family, it would have removed that social stigma of barrenness that would have been present. And it would have restored them back to uh, the full favor of God in the eyes of the people. Not that God ever had disfavor on them, but God had a special purpose for them. But here, it would have restored them to a social status equal to their priestly rule and reign. That there was a uh, a social stigma on them because of their barrenness. And, and the birth of John would have removed that. So the Lord magnified his mercy to her as someone from the line of Aaron, serving in the priestly class, doing all of these things, faithful and true, but yet this one thing was hanging over them. And God removed that. And so it caused great rejoicing in the neighbors. And it was something that uh, the prophecy regarding John uh, in verse 14, that you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And so just the initial rejoicing there of the neighbors, they had, uh, they rejoiced with her there in verse 58. And then on the eighth day, we're going to get now into the circumcision and the naming of the baby here. Uh, they came to circumcise the child. And this was in accordance with the Mosaic law. Now, now the practice of circumcision is a sign of the covenant between God and his people. It was that Abrahamic sign that you're entering into that covenant. So on the eighth day of the child's life, they would bring the child in and circumcise the child according to Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. That's where the covenant is established and circumcision becomes the mark of that covenant. And then in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, the Mosaic law kind of formalizes that practice as a, a regular part of their life. And so, <clears throat> this becomes something that they do. It's, it's the intentional bringing of John into that covenantal relationship with God, that that falling under the Abrahamic covenant. Now, it, it was his relationship with Israel. It's his entrance into the community. It's his entrance into that life uh, and the role that God has for him. So God was going to bring redemption for Israel from within the people of Israel itself. And so that's a magnificent th thing that he's doing here. And so the circumcision was a normal thing. We'll see that again with Jesus in chapter 2 as we look at his birth coming up. So on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And at the circumcision, they would have named the child. Um, uh, they would have announced the name and publicly identified the child. Now, normally the name would have been given based on something about the birth of the child or the character of the child or, or something that would signify something about the child's life. There wasn't necessarily a practice of keeping a family name in line. Although that was common, you could name them after a grandparent, but it wasn't necessarily the expectation. So this is somewhat unique here. Um, the idea that the father's name would be expected to be the child's name is somewhat unique throughout history here, but uh, is uh, it's meant to give a struggle between the fulfillment of God's word and the obedience of Zechariah uh, versus John and his obedience here. So um, they, they would have called him Zechariah after his father, 
But his mother answered and said, no, he, he shall be called John. Now, Elizabeth wasn't present when Gabriel gave this announcement to Zechariah. So obviously, from that time forward, Zechariah and Elizabeth were able to communicate. Zechariah would have written down what he saw and would be able to communicate this to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth received it and accepted it and believed it. You can go back to verse 39 <coughs> through 45 where Elizabeth meets Mary. And Elizabeth just knows, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, sees and knows what God is doing. And so she's fully accepted this and she's steadfast and, and, and fulfilling the word of God that his name will be John there. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. It's not a family name, so it's unexpected for them. And they made signs to his father. Now, the, the word for mute that, that uh, Zechariah uh, is described by, it can also mean mute and deaf. Uh, mostly it's used just for, for mute though. So, um, maybe they, they, you know, you know, when someone is unable to speak, we oftentimes change the way we speak to them <laughs> thinking that that helps. Um, and so that's perhaps what's going on here. They're making signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. What do you want, Zechariah? You're the authority here. What is he going to be called? You have that final decision. And so he asked for the writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. Now, notice Zechariah, maybe a small detail, but Zechariah didn't say, I give him the name John, but his name is John. It's already been determined. His name is John. With that name, it says, uh, all of them wondered. They were all amazed at this. This is something new. This is something different. It's unexpected what's going on here. In the verse 64, promise is given. And we see what happens here is that uh, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. So just as the angel said that the sign of this miracle that was going to be taking place was that you're going to be unable to speak until these things come to pass. And so immediately after the name of John is pronounced and it is fulfilled there, he's able to uh, speak again. And it, and it comes to pass, and his mouth is open, and his tongue is loosed, and he blesses God. He praises God for that. At that point, all fear came on all their neighbors, and all of these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Now, the fear came upon the neighbors not because of the practice of circumcision, not because of the naming of the child, but because of the miraculous ability of Zechariah to speak again. That they saw something when he came out of the temple uh, back <coughs> um, in verse 21, that, that the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was in, unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service ended, he went home. So that would have been a story that everybody would have known around that time. They would have been aware of what was happening. And so here, now that Zechariah's muteness is taken away and he's able to speak and he blesses God, the very thing you would have expected him to do coming out of the temple, he would have blessed God and blessed the people. Here his mouth opens and he blesses God for the first time. And fear falls all of them, awe and wonder and at what God is doing. Something is happening on a spiritual, miraculous level that's not normal. And so it caused this fear to fall on all of the people. And they talked about it all throughout the hill country of Judea. It was the talk of the town, the talk of the neighbors. They would travel to the next community and say, did you hear what just happened? And so it became the talk of that. And then verse 66, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. So, so they, they heard all this and they, they pondered it in their hearts and they said, what then will this child be? So there's something special happening for the hand of the Lord was with him. So what's going on here? There's something miraculous happening in Zechariah's life. This barren couple reminding us of Abraham and Sarah are now having a child in old age, past the childbearing age, this, this muteness came upon the father and then is lifted at his birth. There's miraculous signs. There's an angelic visitation. There's, there's a vision. There's all sorts of things happening around the life of this child. What kind of child is this? What is this child going to be is the question on all the people's minds. So as talk gets around town, as talk goes around the neighborhood, around the community, around the region, people are saying there's something special happening over there in that town, in that house with that couple they have a child. It's a special child. What's this child all about? The anticipation would have been rising. And so there, this, this question 
what then shall this child be becomes the response. It becomes the, the, the drive into Zechariah's song. We see our third nativity song breaking forth uh, in verse 67 and onward. But that question becomes the driving question. Who is this child? This child has been promised back in uh, chapter chapter 1, verses 16, 17. We see angel Gabriel telling uh, Zechariah a little bit about the child, what he's going to be. But the people don't know yet. Who is this guy? What is What kind of child was born here? What, what do we need to know about this child? And so <clears throat> Zechariah speaks forth this prophecy. Now, this is the third nativity hymn that we're looking at. It's, it's known as Zechariah's Benedictus. And the word Benedictus just comes from blessing. The first word of there is blessed be the Lord. And so it's a blessing that Zechariah is making, or Zechariah is making to the Lord because of the work of God. Now, the first two that we've already looked at were Elizabeth's Benedicta in chapter 1, verses 42 through 45, when Elizabeth meets Mary and praises Mary and praises the child in Mary's womb. And then we see Mary's Magnificat in verses 46 through 55, where Mary praises the Lord and begins to accept her position. And here we see Zechariah's Benedictus in verses 68 through 79 that we'll break down here. And so these three nativity songs, and there's still two more to come in early in chapter 2 that we'll cover in the next couple of studies. That it It's a halt in the movement of the story. Okay, because up until this point, we're driving forward from the announcement to the fulfillment of these promises. And now we stop the story because Luke, as the author, crafting this that we might be convinced, that we might be certain, wants us to know who these characters are. So as we come forward into the story of John, he stops after his birth. He comes in as fulfillment of the angelic prophecy. And the question is asked, who is this child? And Luke says, now, let me give you the answer. Uh, let me let me give you this prophecy that Zechariah made that tells us who this child is, and so we can look into that. and And, and it's it, it stops the the narration. There's no more movement of time frame here, but we get to stop and pause and reflect and meditate on who this child is. Now, in the song, just to give you an overview, we reach back. And, and the first part, verses 68 through 75, kind of reaches back and celebrates what God does in the history of Israel. It, it looks back at the prophets in verse 70, the ancestors in verse 72, Abraham specifically in verse 73, and the character of God himself as he demonstrates his faithfulness, his grace and mercy to the nation of Israel. And so <clears throat> what John is to become is can only be appreciated in consideration of what God has been doing throughout history, because it's the consummation of the plan of God in the life of John. So this first part uses symbols from the Exodus, from the Jubilee, and we'll take a look at that. Uh, and, and it puts it in terms of the salvation of David and what God is planning to do. So it's a focus on the mercy that God has demonstrated to his people in the past. Now, the second part of this song in verses 76 through 79 looks at how God is beginning his final work of redemption. God is up to something, bringing the consummation of his Old Testament plan here. So in these verses, he's not looking back at the works of God. He's looking at the mercy of God highlighted in what he's doing now, bringing about the final redemption of his people. The anticipated Messiah we're going to see at the end of this song. And so... Let's pick up in verse 67. He says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So Zechariah now is filled with the Holy Spirit. So anything that comes out of his mouth is God-ordained, God-breathed. It's, it's, it's demanding of attention and, and, and true and right. It's Holy Spirit-inspired. And this is just the same as Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit at her Benedicta, according to verse 41. So both parents of John here are filled with the Holy Spirit as they give their praise, their blessing unto the Lord and describe what God is up to. And so it ties the redemptive history of God uh, to his people over the centuries, and it brings it forward into the birth of this child. And so under the Holy Spirit, we have attention, and you need to accept everything he's saying because this is from the Holy Spirit. Now, it's great because throughout the song, we're going to see personal pronouns used. Us, we, our. This is meant to draw us into the fellowship of these people that have experienced this. 
This is your personal story, he's telling these readers, the Jewish people. This is your salvation at hand. Not just a national thing, but it's yours personally. What God is doing is he's bringing the consummation of his plan for you and for the nation as a whole. So don't get wrapped up in thinking this is for everybody else and us as a group. It's for you as a person. So verse 68, let's pick up and look at the first half in verse 68 through 75. I'll read the whole thing and then we'll go break it apart. It says, Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So the song begins with praise, and then it turns and it gives the reason for our praise. So it uses the common language of the Psalms. This is very reminiscent of a lot of the Psalms that reach back even to the Exodus now, there are three reasons given for praise here in the first couple of verses. He says, first of all, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So praise, how, how wonderful is the Lord God of Israel for or because, here's the reasons for our praise now, he has visited, he has redeemed, and he has raised up. So God has done these three things for the people and therefore we bless him because of his actions toward us. Now, this first term here, visited, he has visited his people. Some uh, may translate this, that he has looked with favor upon his people. So God has noticed his people in a favorable way. He's he's coming to them in a, a favorable way. He's visited his people. Now, this would have caused us to look back to the account of Abraham and Sarah. Because in Genesis chapter one, uh, chapter 21, sorry, verse 1, it says that God visited Sarah, and that visitation resulted in the pregnancy of Sarah uh, past her childbearing years. So God looked with favor, or God visited Sarah in that day and brought about a miraculous birth that, that perpetuated the line of Israel up until that day. It was God's favor that did this. In Zechariah's Benedictus here, Luke uses the past tense verbs in this portion. So he's looking back at the favor that God has shown to Israel. So God has visited us. God has looked with favor upon us. Uh, All the way back from the account of Abraham and Sarah, and then throughout our history, God has visited us. He's looked with favor on us. He's poured out his favor upon us. That's what that is meant to do. And then he has redeemed his people. Now, the term redemption is lutrosis in the Greek. It comes from the Greek word luo, which means to loosen. So to be redeemed is to be set free, to be loosened from bondage, to be uh, uh, allowed to go. <clears throat> and so it looks back, and the language of this is reflective of uh, the Exodus in particular, but the Jubilee as well. And so when we look back to the Exodus, the language of deliverance there is is, is obvious uh, that that uh, God has set us free. Uh, there, there's deliverance from enemies all over. Egypt at that time was the enemy, and they had enslaved the people Israel. And what God has done is he has brought redemption. At that time, it was through Moses and the, how God used Moses. He led the people out of Egypt and out of their slavery to bring them freedom, to establish a new community with them. And so he's delivering them from their enemies who are oppressing them and who are abusing them. And so we see that in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, numerous times throughout Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 8, chapter 9, verse 26, chapter 13, verse 6, etc., etc. And then as well as we look into the Psalms, remember that a lot of Zechariah's Benedictus here uh, is reminiscent of the Psalms. Psalm 106, especially verse 10, is very uh, similar to uh, Zechariah's Benedictus here, where he's giving uh, a message of redemption of the people from their enemies, from from those who would uh, mistreat them. So this language would have driven the mind of the hearer back to the Exodus. Look at what God has done. He's visited us and shown favor, and he's redeemed us from our enemies, brought us out into freedom, loosened us for a purpose here. And that would have reflected back to that. 
It also would have reminded them of the Jubilee. Now, the Jubilee can be found in Leviticus chapter 25. <clears throat> and it was a principle of Old Testament Israel where the people would have been released from debts. Uh, the land would have been restored back to its original owners. And it was a, a way of preventing people from falling into systemic and ongoing poverty. And it would have allowed people to regain a, a sustainable life and, and prevent ongoing debt and ongoing slavery. And so in verses 23 through 34 of Leviticus 25, we see there's the redemption of lost property. So if you had to sell your land in order to make ends meet, you couldn't keep up with it anymore and you would sell it to someone else. Every 49 years, you would have a year of jubilee. And in the year of jubilee, the land would return back to the familial linear ownership there and it would be restored back to them. And whoever had the land previously would pay a certain amount based on how many years were left until the year of Jubilee. So if there were five years to the year of Jubilee, I would pay you for your land what would be estimated to be the five-year value of your land, what I think the crops would grow and, and that sort of a thing off of your land. If there were 40 years till the year of Jubilee, I would pay more for the land because in that year of Jubilee, the land would be restored back to the original owner. And similarly, uh, in Leviticus 25, uh, if someone had fallen into debt and couldn't couldn't make ends meet and had to borrow money, they would go into indentured servitude. It was called slavery in the Old Testament, but they would work off their debts and they would work until their debts were paid. And if you found yourself in indentured servitude, someone else, and just like the land, someone else could come and pay off what you owed and redeem you from that condition, redeem you from that position. So Leviticus 25, 47 through 55 talks about in the indentured servitude that happens there. And you could be redeemed out of that situation and be freed up to be restored back to your lifestyle, back to what God intended for your blessing in the land. And so these, these words and this blessing of Zechariah here, where blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he has visited and redeemed us. He's shown his favor to us and he's redeemed us. He's bought us out of our servitude condition, out of our condition where we've lost our property, lost what belongs to us, and he's restored us back to those things. He's restored us back in those. This would have been the mindset of the people hearing this. That they would have thought of the Exodus and the Jubilee at, at God's favor being given to them. And so <clears throat> this visitation and redemption would be ineffective if, if it was left up to you in your weakened state. You, you could not do anything to get yourself out of this. You're in the servitude in the first place because you've fallen into a weakened state financially, or you've done something that has put you into that state. And so in that state, you can't buy yourself out of it. Someone else would have to come and pay for you, or you would have to earn your way out of it. In order to redeem lost property, you would have to raise the funds to buy the property back, or someone else could come and pay your debt for you. And that was the point. So Continuing on to verse 69, the third thing that God has done is he's found us in a weakened state. We've been in bondage and he's loosened us and he's loosened us by raising up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So he's raised up someone, a horn of salvation, and he's brought this about and he, he clarifies where it comes from, from the house of David. It's very important. And so in our weakened state, we can't save ourselves. We need someone else. Now, in the ancient Near East, this idea of a horn would have speak of strength and courage. So the horn of our salvation is there's a strong, courageous uh, Savior, something that's going to bring salvation to us that, that is not going to be deterred by fear and is strong enough to overcome any enemy. And so this horn of salvation is able to accomplish our redemption. And so the word horn... It comes from a word for hair of the head, uh, but it speaks specifically of, an, of a horned animal. It's the horn on, say, a bull would be the idea. And what a bull does with their horns is they defend themselves. They charge, they fight, they defend, and, and they use their horns as a symbol of strength and defense and, and to win the battles. And so to have a horn of salvation, we have a fierce defender, a fierce individual who's going to fight for our salvation. And because he is uh, a horn of salvation, he's strong and courageous in that and able to do that. Now, in 
other passages that speak of this, specifically of the line of David, Psalm 122, I'm sorry, 132, verse 17, says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. <clears throat> and 2 Samuel 22, verse 3, it says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. He's my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. So all the way back in Samuel, he's the horn, he's the savior. Now the horn is raised up from the house of David, from the family line of David. This connection between David and the the savior, the Messiah, has been made uh, twice already in, in the narrative of Jesus. So looking at Jesus's mother in chapter one of Luke here, verse 27, we see that she is described as from the the line of David uh, in verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and a virgin's name was Mary. And so the house of David is already expressed there in verse 27. And again, in verses 32 to 33, the angel Gabriel makes it very clear that he will be great and be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so the idea that this is this baby in Mary's womb is of the house of David has already been established. And here Zechariah is tapping into that, that he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he's he's talking about this in the past tense. God's already done this because the child is already in the womb of Mary. And so he would have heard about Elizabeth's uh, visit with Mary. Mary would have been in the house there. Zechariah would have had time with them and they would have been able to share their stories and been able to see what God is up to. And so all of this is done, it says in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. So this is not a new story. This is something that should be expected by every Jewish person because the prophets, beginning with Abraham, through Moses, through Daniel, uh, through Zechariah, through uh, the minor prophets, Micah, uh, and so on and so forth, all of these prophets speak of God raising up someone from the house of David. Second Samuel uh, speaks specifically about that, gives us the Davidic covenant and the, 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 the promise of God sending someone uh, from the line of David that would sit on the throne of David forever. So these previous promises made to the people of Israel tell how it's going to be done, who we should be looking for. And now that we might be certain, Luke says, I want you to be convinced of who this is. This is happening in accordance to the Old Testament prophecies. Who is coming, this child to be born, not John, but the other child to be born, we'll see, is being raised up as a horn of salvation from the line of David, just as the Old Testament prophecies have told us. And so we can't miss that. And so this is very important. And then we see here that the what is going to happen, the result of this horn of salvation being raised up in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, the concept, if we reach back to the Exodus, the redemption of God is that we would be saved from slavery, from the hand of the enemies of the Egyptians. They were the enemies at that point. And so the redemption was a social, a political, a a, a financial, even freedom from oppression. And this is perhaps what I think Zechariah is intending here, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. We're saved from the oppression of people around us, from the hand of those that want to conquer us. We are redeemed from this physical oppression we've experienced in this world as God's chosen people. And so at this point, he seems to be indicating that political, social freedom and redemption. Now, under at this point, again, remember, they're living under the Roman Empire, There's an occupying force uh, that is controlling their land. And so he says, we're going to have freedom from all of this. We're going to be free from that oppression, those who hate us, those who would hold us under their boot. We would be saved from our enemies. So that's the salvation they're looking for at this point. Now, the, the purpose of God doing this, what God is intending to show here, is it's not what God has done any longer, but why God has done this. So what God has done is that he's visited us, he's shown favor to us, he's redeemed us, and he's raised up a horn of salvation in accordance with the Old Testament prophecies to, again, the consummation of what God has been doing throughout history for Israel so that we would be saved from our enemies. But why? Why is God doing this for us? 
So verse 72, he continues on, God does this to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from our hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear. And so the purpose, the the reason that God has done these things is that he might save the people from their enemies. So he's looking back, remembering the Exodus and looking even currently, what is the greatest enemy at this point? It's sin. So he's done this to demonstrate his mercy according to his promises. God has wants to show the mercy that he's promised to his fathers through the Abrahamic covenant, through the covenant he's demonstrated to them. And it's now being continued. What God is doing in showing his mercy is being continued and consummated in the coming of this child. Now, notice the switch to the first person pronouns here. He's showing the mercy promised to our fathers. It's those who had hated us. And these are the things that God has sworn to our father Abraham. And he's granting us that we might be able to be delivered from our enemies. It's not Old Testament Israel. Now it's us today. His mercy is being demonstrated today through the birth of this child, the horn of salvation, that we can experience his mercy and know his mercy. Now, it's very important that we note that God's mercy is not something he simply talks about. God doesn't have good feelings for us. He has active mercy toward us. Is that He's done all this, saved us from our enemies to show the mercy that he's promised to us. It can be translated that God has done mercy to us. And God doesn't just remember his holy covenant, but he thinks on the covenant and it moves him to action. So God remembers and does things. His action brings forth uh, results because of his mercy. And so why does God show this mercy? Why does God remember the covenant this way and do that? Verse 74 answers, it says that we, because we're now delivered from the hand of our enemies, now that we're taken out of that condition, out of that that, uh, state where we were in bondage, we've now been loosened, we've been redeemed for the purpose that we might serve him without fear. This is another reference back to the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, Moses goes into Pharaoh and says, let my people go that we might go into the wilderness and worship him. Now, the goal of all of God's work is that we would be a special people unto him to worship and honor his name. It's not that we would be freed up to go and pursue our own agendas and do our own things and live our own life. It's that we would be freed up to relate with him in a new way, to be unhindered and unobstructed in our relationship and fellowship with him, to worship him and give him the glory that he deserves. That's the purpose of our redemption. And so this newly freed community, if we look back to the Exodus, this newly freed community, the first thing they were to be is to be dedicated to the worship of the Lord. And then as they established their new community, as they established this new life apart from bondage, all of their activities and all of their practices were to be centered on the central practice of worshiping the Lord. So the way they conducted their businesses were to be focused on worshiping the Lord through the practice of their business. The way they lived in their marriages and in their families were to be lived out in a worshipful setting as unto the Lord. The way they had interactions in their community, etc., etc. All of it was to be done in light of worshiping the Lord in everything they did. Now to you and I, This is the same thing for us today. We have been redeemed. We have been freed from our sin by the child. I'm getting ahead of myself in the book of Luke here. But we've been redeemed for a purpose. And the purpose hasn't changed. That we might serve him without fear. We now have a new relationship with God and we get to serve him and live out the life he's called us to. We have a, we're part of a new free community, free from the bondage of sin that we might serve him. It's not freed from the bondage of sin that we can go and do our own thing and go back into our sin and back into our own pleasures. But we have been freed for the purpose of bringing honor to God. We're freed to serve him now. And so we need to keep that purpose in mind in all that we do, the jobs we go to, our home lives, our friends, the marketplace, everything we do is to be geared around the worship of the Lord. And how do we worship the Lord in all of those settings should be a key purpose in our thoughts and our minds. Now, as he continues, he says, we serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So we're made holy 
because Christ has done the work for us. So we get to serve in holy and completeness and fulfillment and righteousness and right action, right activity all of our days. Everything we do is holy and righteous before God because we are redeemed from unholiness and unrighteousness. And we're to live that out in our lives. Now to finish this section up, verses 76 through 79 brings us to the second half of this song. So instead of looking back at the work of God, at the mercy of God shown to the people of Israel throughout history of how he's visited and redeemed and raised up a horn and he's done all of this in the life of Israel that's brought us up to this point today where these children are being born, now we're looking at the mercy of God highlighted and how he's bringing this redemption to its consummation, how he's bringing a final redemption about for his people through the anticipated Messiah. So all that we've been waiting for for thousands of years in the Old Testament is now being brought to its its peak. It's all being fulfilled in front of us here. So Zechariah turns from the past tense to the present tense, and he begins to address what's now happening before them in the life of the child that's just been born, John. So he addresses John. He addresses the life that John is going to have and what purpose John has in verses 76 and 70 through 79, and then how this is going to bring uh, the purpose of the other child, Mary's womb, the Lord, about. And we'll see that in just a second as well. So verse 76 says, And you, child, speaking to John, the newborn baby there, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God. So, John, you have a specific purpose. You have a special plan. First of all, you're going to be called the prophet of the Most High. Now, the, the Most High is a, a reference back to God. We saw earlier in chapter 1 where uh, the Most High, that, that he would be called the Son of the Most High back in verse 32. Uh, when the birth of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Jesus is the Son of God. And here, Zechariah is going to be a prophet of the Most High. And he's going to be called that because he's going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is one of the first times that we get the indication that Jesus is the Lord on earth. We saw a little bit in Elizabeth Benedictus and in Mary's Magnificat, where we saw a little bit about them beginning to get that clue here. But Luke seems to give us a, a picture forward into that, that you're going to go before the Lord. And he's identified Jesus now as the Lord, and John is coming before him. Now, this role of John going before the Lord uh, looks back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where there's uh, one who's going to be going before and preparing the way of the Lord. Now, there's no, been no prophet in Israel for almost 400 years at this point. So the people have been devoid of prophecy, devoid of a word from the Lord, of direction from the Lord since Malachi. And this prophetic word would have been a welcome aspect of ministry that the people should have been excited over and looking forward to. And so, <clears throat> as we continue through this, we're going to see a distinction between John and Jesus as well. It's John who goes before the Lord. John is going before Jesus, which sets him apart. John is not the Lord. John is not the Messiah, but he's going before the Lord. And so uh, this signals a shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament thought life. In the Old Testament, the term Lord would only refer back to Yahweh, God. And by calling Jesus Lord here, and it's clearly Jesus that they mean, uh, when you're calling Jesus the Lord, you're identifying Jesus with Yahweh. It would have been a new concept, a new radical thing that God would take on flesh and become a baby. It's a radical step. But Luke is now looking forward to uh, the, the knowledge of who Jesus is that's going to come later throughout the gospel. And he's giving us hints of that now. So it's not something that the people standing there would have fully grasped that Jesus is the Lord. But Luke is hinting that because he knows the end of the story. And so beginning in, in Luke 1 verse 17 uh, especially in, in verse 43 there. In Luke 1, 17, we see there that uh, <clears throat> the angel Gabriel is talking to Zechariah, and he says that John is going to go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So we get a little bit of a hint of, of the Lord coming is going to be Jesus, and, and, and John is there to prepare the people for that. 
And again, in verse 43, uh, Elizabeth and her Benedicta to, you know, as Mary comes in and the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps in recognition. Verse 43 says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So again, we get that hint that my Lord is the baby inside the womb of Mary. Not, not just Yahweh God in heaven, but Yahweh God in heaven has now come and is dwelling in this baby that's in the womb of Mary. So we start to transition from an Old Testament view of Yahweh as, as the solo God out there to now Yahweh coming in and occupying the womb of Mary through the person of Jesus about to be born. And so we're, we're making a shift um, and, and assessing the identity of the child Jesus even at this very early stage here. Now, to tie in the benedictum uh, of Zechariah here, back to the angel Gabriel's prophecy uh, back in earlier in this chapter, verses 16 and 17, the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that his son is going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now, this is a proclamation of repentance. Okay, and then those days you're going to turn. That's the idea of repent. To turn is to turn, to repent is to turn and go the other direction. You were doing things one way, now you're going to change it. And that's what uh, the angel Gabriel says that John is going to do. He's going to cause people to turn and do things differently. And the result of that is what Zechariah gives here in verse 77. So he's going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways by bringing repentance in the people. And as the people repent, He's going to, verse 77, give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So this knowledge of salvation, this is a experiential knowledge. They're going to have a knowledge of being right with God, a practice of being right with God, not because of their works, not because of they've done something uh, according to the law that's made them worthy, but they're going to be redeemed in that sense. And they're going to turn and start walking with God because of the forgiveness of their sins. And so this forgiveness would give them that salvation that they experience with God. Uh, as John preaches later in chapter 3, verses 3 through 14 especially, the concepts of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation with God are, are linked together. You repent and you are forgiven and you're reconciled unto God. And, and you have salvation. And that's what he's, he's hinting at here, even in uh, Zechariah's prophecy that we're seeing now. The practical salvation of the people, the, the being made right before God, having the forgiveness of their sin is possible because, in verse 78, of the tender mercy of their God. Now, this mercy that is now present and now available to the people bringing experiential salvation, knowledge of that and the forgiveness of their sins that they can be uh, repentant and have forgiveness and have salvation in God, it's because of the tender mercy of God. It's the same tender mercy as in verse 72 where God promised to show mercy to the fathers. God's mercy has been the foundation throughout all of history. God had mercy on Israel showing them great favor. Showing, showing them his, his great grace and bringing them into covenant relationship and being merciful to them, not giving them what they deserved. Because what we all deserve is punishment. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned. All of us deserve judgment. But God in his mercy, his great mercy, has made forgiveness of sins through repentance that leads to salvation possible for each of us, that we could be freed and redeemed from our condition and now live out the life in relationship with him, being reconciled to him. And so it's, a, it's this prophecy of Zechariah looks forward to all of that work of God being consummated now. In the Old Testament, we see God's promises of that. We see his favor to bring those things about in the lives of the people, but it's still a constant need for redemption over and over again. Here, what God is doing is he's bringing a child about. He's going to go before the Lord and he's going to prepare the way so that the Lord can bring that final redemption about so nothing more is needed. There is no greater redemption coming than what we have. Now, let's get into a difficult passage here. It's because of the tender mercy of our God that we have any of these things. Now, whereby, in verse 78, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, this is a little bit challenging because... What's the sunrise? It's it's could be the dawn. 
It's the rising of the light first thing in the morning. When we see this word in scripture, uh, the word is Anatole. Uh, when we see it throughout scripture, it speaks of the east. When we see the wise men coming from the east in Matthew chapter 2, it's that word Anatole. It's the direction of the east. It's the direction of the sunrise, the direction of the, the, the rising sun in the morning, of the dawn time. So, uh, many passages will say in the east or uh, the sunrise in the east or the dawn. Those are common ways that this word is translated. So the, the rising of the dawn in the east is a scriptural term that speaks of the illumination, the, the light coming in and bringing things out of darkness into light. And as he continues through his song, that's exactly where he goes with this. So this is a common prophetic uh, statement and analogy being made that, that the people would have understood. So the sunrise is the dawn of the light. It brings illumination to all things and provides a means for our direction because we can now see things clearly. And so the light that comes from heaven, now realize that in verse 78, it says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And that term on high speaks of the heavens, of an exalted place. So the sunrise shall visit us there's that term visit again. He's visiting or showing great favor upon us from heaven. Um, he's come down and he's done that for us. Now, in John chapter 1, you guys are familiar with this passage, I believe. But John chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. I'm going to read the whole passages because I think they're significant enough. John chapter 1, verses 4 through 9 says, In him, speaking of in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When the sun rises, the night flees. The night doesn't beat out the day. Okay. And then verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. So John is not the sunrise that we're looking at here, but he came to bear witness about the light. He goes before him to prepare the way. And then verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So speaking of Jesus being the one who comes into the world and John preparing the way for him. Now, jump ahead with me to John chapter 8, verse 12. <coughs> Jesus is speaking and Jesus says to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this concept of light and the sunrise and the early dawn bringing illumination and light to all things it is a common uh, concept in Judaism and even in ourselves today that when you come into the light, you, you come into knowledge and understanding and you're able to see things clearly. And so we have the sunrise visiting us from high, shedding his light on all things that we can see clearly, looking with favor upon us in that visitation there, uh, coming from heaven, the incarnation. And then the purpose in verse 79 is to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And so there's this twofold manifestation, and it's also to guide our feet in the way of peace. So the twofold things that the Messiah does is the sunrise comes, he gives light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. These are those who are under the domain of the oppression of the enemy. You're in darkness. You, you are trapped by sin. You've not been loosened. You've not been redeemed. You're still under those slavery terms. You're in indentured servitude. You've lost your land. You've lost your things. And you now serve someone else for your subsistence. You're waiting for the redemption. Back to the, the Exodus and the Jubilee uh, uh, comments there. And so the coming of the sunrise, the coming of the light, the coming of this one who's visited us from on, on high, the, the dawn is often capitalized in many of these uh, verse 76 because it's, it's speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the dawn. He is the sunrise. And so those who are living in opposition to God are uh, getting the light now as they sit in darkness and in the valley of death or, or in the shadow of death. And so Paul makes use of this later on in scripture in Acts 26 verses 17 and 18. He talks about those who are turning from darkness to his glorious light. And it's the metaphor of salvation. To turn away from darkness and into light is, is what happens when a person is saved. The, those who are in darkness have no means of escape. You're stuck in the darkness until the light comes and the light shows you the way out, and the light brings you out of your dark condition. That's your method, your mode of escape, is the light itself. 
And so those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, they're sitting there, they're not moving, they're stagnant, and they can't change their condition until the light comes. And when when the light is given, now they're able to get up and move. And they're able to do that because they can guide our feet into the way of peace. So in contrast to those who are sitting in darkness, in the shadow of death, uh, they're, they're sitting there stuck in their condition. Now the light comes and guides our feet causes movement, illuminates the pathway so that we can now walk. We can get up and move. We're no longer sitting. We're now walking and we're walking in peace. We're not walking in opposition. We're not walking in uh, uh, contrary natures, but we're walking in peace with God and peace with others, peace with, peace with ourselves. And so the, the direct uh, change in the condition of the person who is sitting in darkness to now walking in peace. It's all because the light has come and brought illumination. It first illuminates the condition. When we're sitting in darkness, we don't know our surroundings. We don't know our condition. And so the light comes and illuminates our condition. We see the dark surroundings. We see our enslavement, if you will. And then the light begins to illuminate a pathway out of that enslavement. And as we know, looking forward, that the pathway out of our enslavement to sin, the pathway out of our oppression from the enemy is Jesus Christ himself. And so as we take that pathway, we are brought into his glorious light and we begin to see the things that he has established for us. We see our condition more clearly. We recognize and call sin what it is. And we find our uh, solution to sin. And we find a new way to live. We enter into a new community. Just as those coming out of the Exodus were forming a new community, we come out of our darkness into the community of his body, to his church, his family. And we now live out in holiness and righteousness all of our lives become a worship act unto God who's brought us out of that condition. And that's exactly what's being spoken of here. We're getting way ahead of ourselves in the development of these theologies, but this is what Zechariah is pointing to. This is what God does for us. He brings us out of that, gives us peace, causes us to walk in the path of peace that we can walk with him in reconciled, saved condition forevermore. And so that's the, the great prophecy of Zechariah. And then this chapter one, we finally made it to the end of chapter one. It finishes in verse 80. It says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So like any other child, this child grew. But unlike many children, this child becomes strong in spirit, not physical. The physical demands were not even mentioned here. He's spiritually strong. There's something distinct about this child. And he was in the wilderness. So he didn't live in the communities. He wasn't a part of the everyday life of everybody else. He was set apart in a special way. Now, because Zechariah and Elizabeth, this is conjecture here, because they were so old at the birth of John, there's a good likelihood that they had passed away early in John's life. Whether he was a young boy or a teenager or even a very young man, um, he would have passed, they probably would have passed away earlier on in John's life. So him being in the wilderness, perhaps he left his family home and went to the wilderness at their passing and has dwelled there since then to be away from the community. We don't know. That's all speculation, but there's a good, we never hear of Zechariah and Elizabeth again. They seem to be gone from his life sometime after his birth, before his public appearance. And notice John is only six months older than Jesus. So when Jesus comes on the scene, John is the same age. And, and so they have great relationship that we'll see coming forward soon. So thanks for joining us. I, I hope this blessed you. I hope you see uh, Luke is convincing us of who these characters are, that they're, they're significant in the redemption story of Israel, but in your redemption story. And we should be convinced of what God has done from before the foundations of the world, through the Old Testament, into the New Testament, in the life of John, the life of Jesus. What he's forming is his great mercy demonstrated to his people as he shares his salvation, his redemption with us, that we can be in right relationship with him. So that's the story that Luke is laying out, and he's laying out how it's all done and how God has told us from before the foundation of the world through his Old Testament prophets, on and on. This is the plan of God. This is the work of God. So I hope that you're convinced. I hope that your faith is strengthened because of that. We'll continue on in chapter two next time to look at the birth of Christ and the significance of that, and we'll see two more nativity songs coming up. 
Um, so uh, stick with us. Make sure you like uh, this channel, like our, our podcast here, uh, so you get notifications when the new episodes come out. And um, send us a message of things that you would like to hear in the future, if there are topics you'd like to hear. Um, we'd love to try to address some of those. And uh, visit the website, mathatai.org, uh, where we have some resources and you can read more about the ministry of Mathatai and what we're doing around the world to train pastors and leaders to better serve their congregations. So thanks for, for stopping by. Uh, we look forward to studying the Bible with you again next time. And God bless.